Can everybody see me? Can you all hear me? Good morning, everybody. Is it? I'd like to invite you all to turn to the book of John, chapter 1. So, I don't know about you, but for me, it was really Rob Hobson that brought that whole thing together. I mean, he was just the glue. Where is Rob? Rob, how did it feel to play with the New Hope Symphony Orchestra up there? Yeah. <laughs> you rock the heck out of God of Wonders. Um, so, uh, just a couple of things. Yeah, we are going to be um, uh, decorating the, the church, decorating the sanctuary uh, right after the service. If you could stick around just for like 15, 20 minutes and just help decorate this place for the Advent season, for the Christmas season, we would greatly appreciate it. Um, and also, um, like Rich said, um, Tracy and Amy, uh, my wife Amy Miller and, and Tracy Whitcamp are going to be painting the hallway a little bit more this t- today. Um, obviously, uh, many of you are probably in your church clothes, so you might not be prepared to, uh, to help with that particular project today, but um, it's probably not going to get finished today. Um, so if, uh, if it's possible, just to mention to them, um, if you're interested in helping them out, they could probably really use it. Um, it's like so incredibly awesome that they volunteered their time to, to paint this hallway, but they're also, you know, families with little tiny kids, so um, many hands would help the, the load. So, um, about probably like nine months ago, something like that, I have to plan the, the worship um, calendar. I have to plan the, 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 um, the sermon calendar. And I saw that, oh, that's interesting. This year, there is a space in between the first week of Advent and Thanksgiving. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes you're having Thanksgiving dinner, and then boom, the Sunday following Thanksgiving um, is Advent, Advent 1. Um, now, New Hope is not all that beholden as a non-denominational church. We're not all that beholden to the liturgical traditions, but we do celebrate Advent in the same way that we celebrate Lent, and we follow the church calendar in that regard. Um, so I just noticed, like, wow, that would be neat. It would be neat to take that Sunday and kind of have it be like about Christmas, but not about Christmas. Or it's like, it's maybe the day is about the incarnation, about Jesus coming down and tabernacling with his people, Um, but it's actually not a Christmas service. We're not going to sing Christmas songs, and there's no decorations. We're doing that after the service. Um, Things like that. It's like, this is like a deep breath before we do this thing again. So, yeah. This sermon is not, this sermon is about Advent and Christmas, but this is not a Christmas sermon. Like I said, New Hope doesn't uh, hold any kind of official liturgical calendar, but those kind of rhythms of the church are good things to get into. Sometimes, because of the way the dates fall, the first Sunday of Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving is the first week of Advent. And we don't get a chance to digest the meal before we're singing Christmas carols, but not this year. This year, we get a chance to digest Thanksgiving in more ways than one and pause before entering once again into this season. I'm sure you've noticed that some respond or maybe react uh, 
differently than others to the various aspects of this upcoming time of year, Christmas time. Some relish it. They love the songs, they love the food, they love the decorations, they love the family, and they love the festivity. While they fully acknowledge that commercialism and superficiality can draw the focus away from Jesus' birth, they sort of have a natural way of cutting through the garbage and enjoying the merriment for what, uh, at least what it can be, a celebration that Christ has been born into a world that is, was in need of a Savior, a Lord, a King. Others just want to kind of keep their head down. They try not to notice the festivities so much. Sure, they suppose it's a good thing to celebrate Jesus' birth, but they just don't have the stomach for too much merriment. And they get through the holiday season by doing what they feel like they have to do. After all, most years it's kind of over before you know it. It might as well be more for kids. Might as well not make all that big of a fuss. Then there are those who want to acknowledge the theological significance of Jesus' birth, what we call the theological term for, for God-made man is, is incarnation, but they're turned off by the way that the culture around us kind of engages in all sorts of odd rituals. So terms like worldly and, and secular kind of seem to fly around haphazardly this time of year. And of course, there are those who just want to have a good time. If we've learned anything from Hollywood, it's that Christmas, after all, is an opportunity to party. No reason to bring things down by focusing too much on some Bible story. But then finally, there's one last group of people that I'd like to mention. It's those for whom Christmas is the darkest time of the year. It's the time that seems to somehow shine a spotlight on all those parts of their life that are, they are the most saddened by, the, the parts of their life that are, that are the most dark. You'll notice that most television shows actually play to this, and they use the Christmas episode of their season to kind of dive deep into their character's past. And at somewhere in the episode, a character finds themselves in a place like this, tearfully looking at imagery like that, listening to some emotional choral arrangement of O Holy Night while the snow falls outside of stained glass windows, do I paint an accurate picture or do I exaggerate? The bottom line is that regardless of where you find yourself on the Christmas spectrum, I hope that we as the church can be a community of grace and peace. A, a church who responds to the incarnation with worshipful celebration, but also acknowledges the truth that humanity has made this kind of a complicated season. In fact... One of the most important things that I think that we can do today before we actually start the Advent Christmas season is to focus on what I, what, what I mentioned before, the incarnation rather than the birth. Um, this is important because the incarnation is, part of the, is the part of the Christmas story that we carry with us throughout the rest of the year. We may not sing Hark the Herald Angel Sings when we do communion in June, but in June we do say, for us and for our salvation, he, meaning Jesus, came down from heaven and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. Now, 
If we were going to carry around a holiday with us throughout the whole year, it, it would be Easter, right? It wouldn't be Christmas because we are Easter people. We are defined by who we are in Christ, who is the crucified and risen Lord, not merely the baby in the manger. Take the birth narratives out of the Bible and you lose two chapters at the beginning of Matthew and two chapters at the beginning of Luke. Mark, who was probably the first of the four evangelists to write an account of Jesus' life, he doesn't even mention anything about Jesus' birth or his childhood. The first picture we get of Jesus in Mark is him being baptized by John the Baptist. And in the Gospel of John, John adds something, well, entirely different altogether. We'll actually get that in a few minutes. But make no mistake, you take the incarnation the teaching, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension out of the Bible when you lose the New Testament. Paul, the Apostle Paul, didn't write the book of Romans because he wanted people to find, follow the teachings of a dead man. He wanted people to meet the living Messiah, the Son of the living God. Whatever Christmas is for us, may it serve to remind us that at that moment, when it seemed that all hope was lost, God himself put on flesh, pitched his tent among his people in order, to, in order to teach them a whole new way of being human, in order to die for them on the cross, in order to give life to them through his resurrection. That is what Christmas is all about. John put it this way. In his gospel. Turn with me if you haven't already to John chapter 1. Right at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word word there is the word logos, which is just a fascinating thing. It's where we get the term logic. It's, it's like in the beginning was um, God's wisdom, God's word, God's um, voice, that voice that, that, that God said, let there be light, like the spoken word of creation. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Again, twice here. Now John has made reference to Genesis chapter 1. Twice now he wants you thinking creation. He wants you thinking about that dynamic God who creates this world. The Word was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, not anything that was made, that was made. In him was life. And the life, that life was the light to men, to humanity. And then here's the kicker. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I'm using the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible. Most of our translations will probably translate that phrase, like I just said, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, has not overcome it. That word overcome um, comes from the Greek word, which means to lay hold of, um, therefore making overcome a good translation. But the word can also mean like 
to lay hold of in, uh, in an intellectual sense, um, to understand, to perceive, to learn, or, or to comprehend. So the new King James follows its, its, its papa, the, the King James, and translates the line, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. You see, darkness may not be able to overcome the light. In the presence of light, darkness doesn't stand a chance. But there's something about the light that is just vexing to darkness. Darkness is indeed this terrifying thing. Many of you know that um, I work part-time for a pest control company. I do that so that... New Hope doesn't have to have the burden of paying me health insurance. So I work for this company just enough to get health insurance from them. Um, And from time to time, I need to be in this warehouse that we have. And because I'm not kind of, I don't have the same schedule as the rest of the guys, I'm often there alone. I'm often there when nobody else is there. So when I'm in the warehouse, I need to turn on the lights. The problem is that the light switch just, like, it's not just inside the door. It's like all the way in the middle of the room. And you actually have to walk down this hallway in the pitch black dark before you can actually find the light switch. Now, I'm not smart enough to bring a real flashlight, but sometimes I do have my phone on with me, and you can kind of shake your phone and use it as a flashlight. But the thing that strikes me is that in the darkness, this just pervasive darkness, um, the the flashlight only kind of works like a little bit. Um, like I'm talking like not being able to see the, your hand in front of you kind of darkness, even if it's a bright sunny day. And it's true that if I turn on my little cell phone flashlight, the darkness doesn't stand a chance in that little area um, around where I happen to be standing. Sometimes the most that I can see is just me. The most I can see is just kind of around me. But it struck me how powerful this darkness is, even in the presence of a little light. It's as if darkness doesn't comprehend the presence of light. Have you ever been in a dark room fumbling for, for a light switch and, and you kind of start to feel your way around the room because maybe you've been there before and you maybe feel what is probably a sofa and you feel, oh, I guess that's kind of a chair and oops, there goes the fish tank. You could probably feel your way around enough, especially if you've been there before. And you could probably make a few educated guesses on what the items in the room are, even while it's pitch black. And then finally, you you find it, and the light comes on, and now the room is illuminated. And while you were kind of like walking on tiptoes, like, I don't know, what is this? Then you turn on the light, and you feel like, oh... Oh, I'm good. Now I can go, I can walk all around. The thing is, nothing about the room itself changes. The furniture in the room is still in the exact same place it was before you flicked on the light switch, but now everything is illuminated. If you did indeed knock over that fish tank, the fact that the light is on will not automatically clean up the tank, but by its light, you'll stand a much better chance of cleaning it up now that the lights are on. In fact... You might say that if the right kind of light is on a given situation, all things are possible. We often use the term light 
to mean comprehension as well. Uh, we look at one thing in light of another, but, but darkness is still a reality. It's going to be hard to clean up that broken glass that got behind the sofa if we don't find a way of shedding light there. Because without light, it's going to be very difficult to clean those dark corners. Of course, if you did find your way to the sofa, and here's another kind of angle for it, you did find yourself to the sofa, and you were able to sit down before hitting the light switch, you may just know enough about the sofa in order to be very comfortable there, even in the midst of darkness. After all, what good is the light when you are asleep? The problem is when the sun begins to shine, just enough light into the room, maybe in the morning, to wake you up and then allows you to realize, oh, I've made a mess while it was dark. The mess that you didn't care about because you couldn't see it. Now just enough light shines in to help you see what you have done. And you begin to realize that ignorance is bliss and you wish for that darkness to overtake you again, but you just can't unsee that mess. You see, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. The, the darkness can't comprehend it. Many like to point out the fact that, that many of our Christmas traditions, they can be traced back to a time long before the time of Christ, and they have nothing specific to do with our Christian narrative, the narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ. The simple truth is that ancient societies, like ours today, um, had what we would call seasonal affective disorder. And it wasn't just about mood swings and being sad. That darkness that the season of winter brings is, is outright dangerous, We're affected by the darkness, um, but we have, uh, you know, a billion little electronic lights all around us at any given time. But, But folks, even over a century ago, had to cope with how to heat their homes with how to feed their families, how to get work done, even in the midst of a of a dark winter. Uh, there's this book I've been reading this week about Christmas by a guy named Bruce David Forbes. He opens his book talking about how dark winters have affected societies. He says this, he says, even before studying the history and anthropology of early cultures, we could guess what human beings might do to cope with the reality of winter. A great idea would be to organize a big blowout midwinter party. You see, that would be perfect. People could have something to look forward to in the first half of winter. The preparations could be a welcome distraction, and the party itself would be a blast. Then once it was over, the remainder of winter would be that much shorter until spring finally brought liberation from the cold and from the darkness. Since darkness and coldness are the central troubles, it would make sense for that season to be a festival involving light and fire. We'd feature candles and burning logs. It would make sense to use evergreen plants as a way of reminding us that not all is dead. We might even use specific plants that bear fruit even in the midst of winter, like holly and mistletoe. It would be a time of of family and friends and gift-giving, a time of parties and music and feasting and, yes, drinking. I don't have a problem with any of that. It sounds a lot better than sitting at home in the dark. 
So it makes sense that traditions like the Roman Saturnalia and Scandinavian Yule would arise that would help ancient societies get through that long winter. We might also add that Christmas wasn't celebrated by Christians for the first several hundred years after the time of Jesus. They were far likely, far more likely to celebrate the death of a martyr rather than the birth. Birth, after all, was the problem. Birth was the start of the problem. Death, though, death was the beginning of eternity. Several of the church's earliest theologians found the idea, the mere idea of celebrating birthdays as extraordinarily pagan. In the earliest days, it was more likely that the birth of Jesus would actually have been commemorated as part of the Epiphany, which takes place on January 6th. But the history around that is actually pretty fuzzy. Um, Epiphany had a lot of things thrown in there, the wise men and uh, Jesus' baptism all the way up to that. So what isn't fuzzy, though, is that Christmas was always controversial. For starters, do you remember that scene um, in Back to the Future? When Doc asks Marty if he'd like to witness the birth of Christ, what, what date does the computer read? DEC 2500000. Well, there wasn't a year zero. 1 BC leads right to 1 AD. But even if there was, we're told that Jesus was born during the time of Herod, who, who died in 4 BC. So that probably puts Jesus' birth somewhere around 6 BC. Also, Jesus probably wasn't born on December 25th. In Luke's birth narrative, we're told that there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. Even in the ancient world, they didn't do this in the winter. That all being said, even if we aren't celebrating Jesus' actual birthday, um, it's not like the Bible has a date for that, it may still be a good thing that we take a season of the year to celebrate the Incarnation to celebrate God dwelling with his people, uh, the word being made flesh and dwelling in the midst of his people. Um, Because Christmas isn't even actually mentioned in the Bible. There's the nativity, but not Christmas. It's It's not like there's a place in the Bible that describes how we're supposed to celebrate Advent and Christmas. The church's tradition of Christmas came about slowly over the centuries. Jesus told his apostles, go and make disciples of all nations, and then they did. As they did that, various different kind of winter traditions were incorporated into Christmas, the Christmas traditions, over time. If you'd like to learn more about that, you can borrow this book. It's a fascinating story. As Christmas traditions met, the, the melting, oh, as Christmas traditions met the melting pot of the new world, things got even more controversial and even more complicated. Not only was there always a tension between the secular and the sacred, there has always been a conversation going on, even in the midst of the church, about whether or not we should be celebrating Christmas at all. So what do we do with that? Well, we do with that what we do with anything else in our life. Because as we sung this morning, I forget the exact words, he wants everything, people. Jesus wants it all. The way I figure it, he paid the price for it all. It all belongs to him. So the point for today is that whatever form, 
our Christmas celebrations take, may they be in light of Jesus. If you're going to give a gift, may it be in light that God gave you a gift. If you're feeling that there's an obligatory nature to the holidays, maybe a little bit of that is saying, well, I need to maybe rethink this tradition. I maybe need to rethink what I feel like I'm obligated to do because I have the freedom in Christ in light of the reality of Christ in my life to not be beholden to obligations that I've made up in my mind. Then again, maybe it's a good thing for me just to go to the party. And it's a good thing for me to smile. Which leads us to merriment. Maybe it's a good thing for us to be a church that celebrates, to to be inviting people. We're having a party, um, a Christmas party on December 8th. Like, I want everybody in this room to come, and I want everybody in this room to bring a friend because Jesus has been born, and that's worth celebrating. Let's do, and, and it's not like we're going to have a, a, a necessarily like break down and have a prayer service in the middle of the, of the party. No, it'll be a normal Christmas party because that's the kind of thing we want to do as we're a church that celebrates the birth of our Lord. Family, what does it mean to be reconciled with our family? You, you see these, this family that you don't see only but once or twice a year, and Christmas is an opportunity for you, to, for you to do that. In light of how God reconciled himself to the world, what is your call as you have conversations with your family, your friends, and your church? And maybe, maybe above all, especially for those of us for whom Christmas is kind of like Ugh, I got to do that again. Patience. Patience with how the world around us celebrates this light that they don't really comprehend. It makes sense that there's all kinds of nasty things that people do around this time of year, especially in light of the fact that human sinfulness is that pervasive. Darkness is pervasive in our culture. May we, the church, be a people who have the light and be able to shine a light in, even into the most dark places because we know how the story ends. We have the freedom to know that God is putting this world to rights. God is putting this world back together. That's why we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, I just pray for my friends here today as they begin again this season of Advent and Christmas, as we walk this line of the secular and the sacred, as we think about what it means that God became incarnate, put on flesh, and died died a, a slave's death, died the, uh, the death of one uh, as one facing humility, as one who saw equality with God not to be exploited, not something to be exploited, but rather humbled himself to the point of slavery, took on the form of a slave and died on the cross for, for each other, for, for you and I. Father, I just pray that um, as we engage in this time of year, 
as we go to the parties, as we give the gifts, as we buy things, as we kind of engage in this commercialism and um, the business of Christmas. Father, may it all be, may our actions all be in light of you. May you guide us to the things that we need to shut the door to and say, you know what, in light of Jesus, I, I don't want anything to do with that. But also be able to open other doors and say, you know what, in light of Jesus, I'm going to participate in this as a follower of Christ because I have the patience and I have the, the freedom in him to celebrate and to know where this whole ship is headed. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.